Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-host Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. We are so thankful to be getting so many people in contact. With us and essentially giving us feedback about how we can improve the podcast. And one thing that you've called for is information and an episode dedicated to electrical vehicles. So today we have a standalone episode on EVs. Essentially, everything you need to know around EVs, the risks, the opportunities, and what it means for the UK market. So Sam, maybe I'll just quickly go over to you. Any initial thoughts before we go into our guest? Yeah, so I think it's worth framing where we currently are on on the EV debate in Parliament and in government. So. The parliamentary view from China skeptic MPs is that their concerns are twofold. First, is China planning to flood the, the British market with cheap EV vehicles? Something we'll discuss in today's episode. And second, can these uh, EVs, these Chinese EV companies, spy on us? And what I mean by that is, can they use the data they collect uh, and send it back to, to Beijing HQ under the Chinese national intelligence law? Is that a real threat that we need to consider? Those are the two things that I often see, and they're often framed as both being true by politicians. So I, I was particularly excited to discuss that in today's episode. The overall narrative is that Chinese car makers are benefiting from from state subsidies. Just last month, Ursula von der Leyen essentially outlined that the European market is being completely flooded uh, by Chinese electrical cars, and the prices are being kept artificially low due to these state subsidies. On average, half of all Chinese cars are being exported to the European Union, with Chinese brands thirty to forty percent cheaper. Than local brands in Europe. So I'd now like to bring in my good friend、uh, Tu Li, who's the CEO of Sino Auto Insight. He really is the man to come to when you're talking about electrical vehicles. And I think Tu, maybe the last time I saw you was we were having a beer in Beersmith back in Beijing. Oh yeah. <laughs> how how、oh, are things?、Man. They're great. So like you, I've I've moved back to the United States where I'm originally from about a year year a、uh, couple months ago. And we opened an office here,、uh, trying to help some companies、uh, in the mobility space because we saw a ton of opportunity through the Inflation Reduction Act.、Uh, that's like a year old.、Uh, so we are seeing some challenges currently, small、uh, bumps in the road for EV adoption in the U.S. But、uh, I think long term, it's still very, very positive. So. So last week we had、um, a critical minerals expert on Henry Sanderson, and essentially he was explaining so much about the the refinement process now sits in China. So refinement, whether it be chips, EV batteries, all sits in China. It's very very difficult to kind of break up that supply chain. One thing we would just love to know, and again, just kind of a basic question, but essentially, why is China the world leader in electrical vehicles, or even is it the the leader in production and sales of electrical vehicles? And if you can kind of just give us a bit of an oversight into the overall China market and maybe the global market as well. Sure. So the three largest markets in the world, and it's two countries in a region. So、uh, China is number one. Last year, around twenty twenty two million passenger vehicles. So let's divide that up from passenger vehicles to commercial vehicles. Commercial vehicles can be commercial trucks, buses, things like that. But let's just look at passenger vehicles. Twenty-two million were sold、uh, last year in China. About 
uh, 11 or 12 million in the EU and around 13, 14 million in the United States. China became the number one market in the world in 2009. And as the EU and the United States are more mature markets. We're not going to see tremendous growth of those numbers uh, that I just mentioned, but we'll still see growth in, in China likely to close to 30 million units, you know, before 2035. Because as you know, Steve and Sam, the tier two, tier three cities, they still have a lot of room for growth, whereas the tier one cities are pretty mature uh, economies. And so, when you are able to build at that scale, especially in a manufacturing sector that's very capital intensive, you drive down costs uh, because effectively you're you're building twice as many or three times as many as any other country in the world. We, what we also know is this misnomer of the the copycat the, that China used to be is not the case anymore. A lot of innovation is coming out of China, specifically in the electric vehicle sector, because there are so many brands competing for sales and so many products and so many features that we should be concerned that Chinese imported vehicles are going to enter the UK and the United States, because guess what? They're made well, they're competitively priced, and they'll sell if, uh, if and when they do enter these markets. I think before we get onto that specific point, because I think that actually underpins a lot of the concern we see from parliamentarians, if I could push you slightly to on uh, to explain how has the Chinese EV market developed in the sense that there's a conception here that, or a view here, sorry, that the Chinese government has massively subsidized every single major Chinese EV company with the strategic plan to flood the rest of the world with Chinese EV vehicles. Is that an oversimplification in the way that it's often characterized that like Xi Jinping sits there and picks these different industries to sort of outwardly flood? Or is that actually a top level, a fairly accurate description of what's gone on? So there's a risk of, of, of flooding the market, but we if we press rewind, you know, Xi Jinping, his administration didn't start the process of investing. I won't say subsidizing or, or you know putting their thumb on the scale, investing heavily, right? They picked batteries, they picked chips, they picked electric vehicles starting in 2009. So they created a subsidy program, they created a rebate program, uh, tax abatement program for the, the purchase, the manufacture of electric vehicles. And so in 2014, uh, a NEO was established, an XPUNG was established, a Lee Auto was established, and coincidentally, Tesla. And Steve and, and Sam, both of you know Parkview Green in Beijing. That's where the first Tesla retail store in China was open. Uh, I luckily lived right next door, and so walked down the first day it was open, and I was like, wow, this is pretty crazy. And then you didn't hear anything about electric vehicles from 2014 till about 2019. These companies were struggling. Some of them were on the verge of bankruptcy, like a NEO. Okay, and then what we did see is a Tesla enter the market and build their own factory in Shanghai. And the first vehicle that rolled off the line uh, was a Model 3 in December of 2019. So let's just say the beginning of 2020. And if we look at that hockey stick that has happened over the last four or five years with EV adoption in China, Coincidentally, it coincides with Jia One rolling off the line 
in uh, Shanghai and Shanghai Giga. So even with all that investment, and we're talking uh, estimates between 80 billion and 100 billion U.S. dollars starting in 2009 to, to nurture uh, with perseverance and patience these sectors that I just mentioned, it took a Tesla, in my opinion, to get the EV sector going in China. Okay. And we went from one and a half million to three and a half million to, to last year, six and a half million. So a couple of years straight of 100% growth year over year. And this year, we're likely going to get between eight and nine million passenger vehicles sold, electric vehicles. So China uh, calls them new energy vehicles, which includes battery electric or BEVs, plug-in hybrids, which is PHEVs, and then fuel cell electric vehicles or FCEVs. So the lion's share is still going to be the BEVs or the battery electrics. And uh, we're not going to see the 100% year-over-year growth in China anymore, but we're still seeing significant, you know, 30, 40% growth. And that's because um, the, the, the support for charging infrastructure, the incentives have gone away from the Chinese government over the last few years. I think I think you can still buy an electric vehicle for uh, that's tax free, but in place of the government incentives, we've seen this price war um, begun earlier this year by Tesla, and it's just been a brutal market in China if you're an EV maker. But it creates a market for consumer. It's a buyer's market because it's a price war, and so. A lot of vehicles that might not have been attractive because of their price are now uh, much more attractive. So Tesla has used price cuts as a way to maintain market share in China for at least 18 months. So I guess one of the things that I'd love to know is around the risks. So one of the things that we spoke about just before coming on the podcast is the Chinese, if they wanted to, could just turn off all our cars. They could just press the button and turn off our cars. But the reason we're sort of saying that, generalizing that, is because technology is essentially so ingrained in every single electrical vehicle now, you know, whether it be chips, semiconductors, it's essentially a, a, t- a technological company, some of these car brands now. So can you kind of just give us a bit of an example, uh, understanding as to the genuine risks that having a, a Chinese car here in the UK or in Europe actually is? I mean, is there one or is it just overplayed? I think the key word is risk because they haven't entered en masse uh, in any market yet. Um, you know, for instance, the largest EV maker in the world, which is currently BYD, it's not Tesla, it's BYD. Um, they've only, uh, last month, they only exported 30,000 cars. So uh, that's a, that number has grown significantly, but it's still a small number. And, um, there are risks, but with regards to data security and data privacy, this is where each of the regions or countries can still get in front because the volumes aren't there yet. But these these discussions need to be had very quickly. And I think an informed consumer is going to be the best consumer. So if the UK is worried, the UK government is worried about that, they need to do, they just need to, to take apart all these vehicles and see, you know, what, what's the real risk here as opposed to this implied risk, right? Because, you know, before we started earlier talking, because the US is an ally, do we allow Tesla to run unfettered 
throughout Europe and the UK. You know, is should should China be treated differently? I don't know, right? That I'm not a politician. Uh, is there a real concern? I'd be more concerned about the dozens, you know, a dozen brands coming to the UK and being exactly what the UK consumer wants, and and taking share away from uh, the domestic players or the players that have, have traditionally been there. Okay, because what I don't think is accurate currently is. Ursula von der Leyen said cheap Chinese vehicles, right? I would say affordable because I I, I grew up in Detroit, uh, worked in the automotive space. And so I've driven these Chinese cars. They are competitive globally now with Toyota, with GM, with Vauxhall, with Ford, you name it. And so uh, if they come in affordably, and again, we can point to... The, the BYD Han and the Tang, which is their signature vehicles for the BYD brand, they're twice as much in Europe from a price standpoint as they are being sold in China. So there are uh, examples that we can see that they're not dumping anything, okay? Now, as, as, as you both know, um, as the Chinese economy continues to struggle, there will probably be more pressure to export, okay? But for the last 40 years, the Chinese government has only gotten foreign direct investment into China. Not many Chinese companies wanted to to export anything, okay? And so the Chinese government really had carte blanche to kind of do and say whatever they wanted, okay? But now that there are Many companies, especially in the EV sector, that want to export, the shoe is on the other foot. Okay, so now they, the governments, U.S. government, U.K. government, EU, need to take a step back and say, how do we want to deal with this, right? Because if they create protectionism, it artificially increases prices of of products that need to be affordable. Okay, because every single automaker has already committed to. Con- converting over to the electric vehicle or clean energy vehicles. If that's prolonged or sustained, it's to the detriment of the foreign brands, not the Chinese brands. And and it's to the benefit of a Tesla. And so I don't have the answers with that, but I think the immediate risk is not being able to turn around the, the, the sectors and the economies so that the domestic players can put competitive products on the road. I mean, what's our alternative? Who are the UK players? I mean, do we have any? As we talk about the specific electrical vehicles, but it's not just that, is it? It's also the charging stations, the infrastructure. Could, could the UK population actually handle having you know 50,000 new electrical vehicles into the market? Could the energy structure ha- handle all of this? So could you just give a bit of an, uh, an oversight around kind of the UK EV market? Sure. So... The first challenge the UK market has with EV adoption, although we've seen tremendous growth in the UK for, um, so in the UK, they have hybrids and the plugins, okay? The plugins and, and the Model Y is a top 10 vehicle sold in the UK. I think it's the only uh, plugin that's a top 10 vehicle. So, which is, which is, pretty surprising to me because it's not inexpensive. I think it's between 40 and 50,000 pounds. 
the numbers, here are the numbers. 1.94 million cars sold last year, okay, in, in the UK. Right now, the take rate for plugins is about 25%. So one in every four UK vehicles sold is either a plug-in or a hybrid. That's despite not subsidizing the purchase of a BEV because the, you know, I've spoken to uh, a few of our mutual friends offline, Steve, and um, the UK government doesn't have money, so they can't subsidize. <laughs> That's what I was told. Yeah, so, on. That's absolutely correct. Anywhere you see EV adoption growing significantly, this, you know, with, with the exception of the UK market, there was significant subsidizing. The United States is giving $7,500 and, and, you know, the Chinese government gave up to 12 or 15,000 US dollars, you know, five, six, seven years ago. We're seeing demand by UK consumers to, to switch over to clean energy vehicles. And the UK used to be a manufacturing hub for, for the automotive sector, specifically in Europe. And it was, you know, they export a lot of vehicles to the United States as well. Now, there are economic challenges that the UK has, but how how bad do does the UK want to reshore manufacturing? Okay, does it make sense economically? Does it provide the jobs that we want? And the 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 other part of it is, will the supply base come too? Uh, you know, Brexit recently complicates that. The EU complicates that because they're also looking to attract battery company, Chinese battery companies. And, and if they're telling you they're not, they're lying, right? Um, because they would love to have two, 3,000, 4,000 jobs appear in a two-year period because an EV factory or Chinese EV factory was built or a battery factory was built uh, in a local town. And, and that's where, to me, uh, the UK is, is in a tough spot because with the Chinese EV makers really making a concerted effort to export and the Inflation Reduction Act pushing the making the United States market less attractive, the pressure or the, re, the release valves, the pressure release valves are now going to be Europe and the UK likely. Okay. We're also going to see a lot of exports into Southeast Asia and Latin America, but UK and European buyers or, you know, automotive buyers are pretty savvy, right? You know, automobiles have been around 120 years. So um, two things in a person's life are emotional buys, a car and a house. And so the other part about the, the risk or dumping is that UK buyers are, are going to need to understand the brand, going to need to trust the brand before they spend their 20, 30, 40,000 pounds. And that takes time. And it's not, you know, because I would argue that Steve and Sam, if you guys have iPhones probably, um, and if you broke it or lost it, you'd be upset. But you'd walk right into an Apple store the next day and buy another one. Whereas in China, at least, it takes 40 hours of research before they'll pull the trigger on the purchase of a vehicle. And so that's going to take a lot of effort to really study um, the local markets. And, and, and you both know UK is very diverse, okay? Just like Europe. 
And so it's not a one-size-fits-all consumer. Uh, but we do know uh, crossovers and small uh, hatchbacks are still very popular. Uh, and so that's where the Chinese EV maker's strength is as well, which creates a lot of challenges for the incumbents. So if I could just jump in there, and, and we'll play a clip of it now, but I think there's an acknowledgement on Labour's side that the government will need to act on some level here to either work with or subsidize British companies or, 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 or to try and level out, call it what you want, the, the, Chinese, the EV market here in the UK. So we can play a clip of that now. The fact is that it is only through a partnership with government that our vehicle manufacturers can achieve lasting success in a world where new technologies offer opportunity and where competition from new participants like China is more of a challenge than ever. It's what other countries are doing, other countries who are ahead of us in the low carbon transport transition race. But I, I'd also like to try and um, add a bit of colour to where the current government and where parliamentarians see the threat, and I'll, I'll use their words for it, a threat of Chinese EVs in, in the British market. And you know, you've made some really good points there about flooding, which is clearly a bit of a misconception uh, and one that could, could do with being challenged here in the UK. But the other two primary concerns that I would say I see a lot of from having uh, read the parliamentary output and speaking to people in the space, number one is is um, the idea again about that that sort of flooding of the market. But I think more importantly is number two. I, I think the government and a lot of politicians have given up on the argument that in a cost of living crisis, they can try and convince the average person to spend more money on a British or American or Western equivalent if the Chinese one is equally as good and a bit cheaper. I, I don't think they think that's a credible argument anymore. But I, where I do think they they think there is ground and where we see comments in the papers um, from former Home Secretary Priti Patel and even an anonymous government source earlier on in the summer is around security. And to come back to that point that Steve raised, there is, you can call it a meme, a misconception, a belief, whatever you want to call it, that at its most simple iteration, if you're in an electric car, not only can your direction of travel be monitored, but what you say in that car can be monitored and listened to. And this all ties back into the, the view that many politicians have here, which is that Chinese companies are compelled to hand over data to Beijing, to the uh, government infrastructure when, when they're asked to. So I, I think given your expertise in this area and given your overview of sort of general markets, first of all, is that a concern that you've seen from other countries when it comes to the Chinese companies operating in their sort of uh, jurisdictions? And second of all, again, avoiding the fact that you, 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 know, you can't speak for every single Chinese EV company ever. Is, is that something you see Chinese EV companies aware of, if that makes sense? Well, they're certainly aware of it. And let me kind of compare and contrast. The Chinese government banned Tesla vehicles um, onto military compounds because there's uh, a lack of trust uh, between these Tesla vehicles. Okay, so these are valid concerns from the from the government, at least if you were to look at the Chinese government's view on Tesla vehicles in these military compounds. Okay. Why was uh, that but, too? Was that the cameras or Yeah, so they this is not a Tesla problem. This is a smart connected electric vehicle problem. They but the Chinese government called out Tesla specifically in this case, because of the cameras, okay? But Volkswagen ID 
for you know id series electric vehicles have cameras and so these are smart connected electric vehicle problems not a tesla problem i believe every single government it has this on their radar right and you know i want to be careful here because there can be things done like for instance the chinese government requires foreign brands that have electric vehicles sold in china to use local servers all right so there are i can't articulate the the specific risks but there are risks that can be mitigated so so there's governmental risk and then there's bad actor risk and so let's make sure that we're talking about um, each of the governments that are allowing exported electric vehicles to acknowledge the risk of uh, because they're an ally, do they get treated differently or do their products get treated differently? You know, I think that's kind of the key question you're asking, Sam. And um, so I don't want to wade too deep into that stuff, uh, but it's something the U.S. government is looking at for sure. Uh, fortunately for the U.S. government, there's not any Chinese electric vehicles being imported. In, well, I take that back. There, there's a handful of Chinese electric vehicles being imported into the United States. So it's not a, uh, a massive challenge or issue yet. But again, it, these are things that um, I think needs to, what needs to be articulated is what is acceptable risk, right? Because is it binary? Do we not allow any Chinese manufactured or Chinese branded electric vehicles into our market? And, and if we do allow that, what's an acceptable level of risk? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, sorry, it's a really good point. And, but I, I think to, to sort of build on that, the way it's been framed here is often, often when the, the sort of China skeptics among parliamentarians and in government view these things, they view the UK as being strategically um, short-sighted and keen to bring in things like, they, for example, they often use just Huawei, right? They say, we wanted 5G, we wanted to be able to have interconnected communities across the UK to power growth, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we're going to take on Huawei as a telecoms provider and all sorts of stuff like that. And then lo and behold, the security services here with a lot of uh, lobbying from the Americans, turn around to us and say, uh, talk to the government and say, actually, Huawei is no longer a valid option. It's, it's got espionage fears, it's got whatever you want, spying fears. And the way that the conversation around EVs has been framed here is the same thing. You know, We've set ourselves these, these climate targets and we're not gonna get there with British manufacturing as is, for all the reasons you've you know so eloquently outlined there. So how do we get there? Well, we need to import Chinese EVs. Oh, well, that sounds great, for, for a short period. And then hang on, we're going to have to recall them all in five, 10 years because, and I'm, again, forgive the simplification of this, but they're, they're working out where ministers are going to and from their home, or there's a backdoor or a bug in it or something like that. That's what I'm trying to get across here is that the, the strategic views that you're putting across haven't even necessarily been considered here in the political domain yet, if that makes sense. There is a real fear that at some point the rug's going to get pulled away and we're going to have to be like, Doink, we're gonna to have to rebuild our EV market from the ground up or whatever, whatever it is. See what I mean? Sure, sure. And and, and I get that. Um, but I'll I'll be quite frank, when talking to clients, it's more more or less in Europe and the United States. Although it's not as um 
effective yet, there's still the, the possibility of reshoring, right? And I think the three of us will say that's probably not a huge possibility for the UK, which really these questions become more existential, right? Do we want to become a part of the 21st century, number one, and then number two, will UK consumers spend more money on allied products and allied brands? Is that acceptable for them? I'm kind of at a loss because the levers are more limited for the UK than they are, but we should look at Let's let's take this a step further. Okay. Let's say robo taxis are 15 years away. Okay. In China, the United States, wherever. And those are the two primary markets for robo taxis. Okay. And because now we get into chips, now we get into the safety of people, right? Do we only use Western brands for robo taxis too in the UK? I see a world that bifurcates from a technology standpoint eventually because what's happening right now with the U.S. government working alongside the EU to limit the the sale of certain AI chips right, and equipment, this is only going to bolster their domestic sectors in these spaces, right? And so, but I do see where certain technologies... Our China and their allies will use certain brands and from certain countries and the United States and their allies uh, will use Robotaxi is probably um, the, the best example that I can give. But these are all the questions that are being debated right now behind closed doors. You know, COVID scared a lot of people, right? How the the Chinese government reacted to it and things like that. And so, uh, I I was there. You guys were there. So so, um, but I don't know what the right answer is going to be because um, I think virtually all the vehicles that the UK has are imported. So, if the UK wants to have an EV market of our own. We have to spend billions, maybe trillions, sort of reshoring uh, refinement of critical minerals, production lines. Um, you know, we're going to have to start subsidizing uh, industries. We're going to have to start subsidizing companies. And again, if we're going to be looking at doing that, we're going to have to start working with our allies who are our allies. I think, you know, that's also an existential question that I'm sure a lot of people are, are thinking about. But if you do have a kind of a crystal ball, can you kind of just give us a bit of perspective of the future of electrical vehicles in the next 10, 15, 20 years, what it might look like globally? So the, the, the current competition is Tesla and BYD and everybody else. Okay. Um, the Stellantis, the Mercedes, the BMWs, the Volkswagen groups, the, the, literally the three major German brands, they're, they have a disproportionate amount of their revenues and profits come from China. And so, uh, there's a, there's a bit of risk for them, and then if you look at Legacy Auto, okay, they're not very good at software, and for the foreseeable future, and, and you can refer back to your your chat with Henrik Sanderson, uh, I would think he would agree with me that for 
through 2030, the U.S. and Europe is going to solely rely on China for batteries for their electric vehicles um, because there's different chemistries that are being used and the Japanese and Koreans use a much more expensive battery chemistry uh, because it's it has a higher range. But most vehicles in China use the LFP, which doesn't have cobalt or nickel. Makes it cheaper, but the range is lower. But in order to get mass adoption, we need cheaper vehicles. Okay, The United States has a, has, has a unique issue because we haul things, we love trucks and all this stupid stuff. But so right now... It's BYD's world, Tesla close second. And in a digital world, things just move faster. Okay. And then in a Chinese digital world, they move like maglevs. And so in 10, 15 years from now, I think there's going to be a number of brands that the three of us have known all our lives that will be shuttered, European and American. Every single one of the legacy automakers, whether you're French, German, Italian, American, Japanese, or Korean, their footprints from a from a headcount standpoint are going to get much, much smaller. I think we're going to see companies like an Uber, like an Amazon, because let's expand this, right? Because it's not just electric vehicles, because I believe in the next 25 years, the electric vehicles will be commoditized. Tesla is already almost doing it by selling close to close to cost in order to gain share because it's not about selling profitable cards it's trying to get as many of them on the road because the gold is the data it's not the actual vehicle okay so if you sell at cost but you can sell 10 million 12 million cars then you can use all that data to extract insights to create businesses or create features that you can sell back Okay, so a lot of companies like a Stellantis and a Volkswagen Group, 10 years from now, they're forecasting that services revenue will be 20, 30 percent, 35 percent of their their total revenues. Okay, and services like an Uber service. So 15 years from now, if we believe that robo taxis are going to be on on the roads, robo taxis and eVTOL or the vertical takeoff and landing. Those are going to be the premier mobility services that a GM has in their mobility app, that an Uber has in their mobility app. Uh, what's going to be important, it's going to be that software. It's going to be those services because the three of us probably have a small addiction to our phones. And that's that stickiness that the automakers want. But to me, I'm, I'm, I think it's great to be in the space. I talk to a lot of startups uh, that are doing exciting things. And... I'm I'm anxious to see how the UK government reacts because first of all, 2030 was an insane date to be saying that you're going to cut sales of 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 uh, petrol and diesel fueled engine vehicles. It was never realistic. Okay, you have invested or committed to invest 1.6 billion pounds in building charging infrastructure. I think uh, the statistic that I saw was 50,000 chargers at, at 30,000 stations. So it's it's working. Uh, there's progress. But in between these towns, will there be enough charging infrastructure, right? And ultimately, I think uh, the average vehicle price in the UK is around 30, 
5,000 or 37,000 pounds in order to get mass adoption, specifically without subsidies, then a lot more vehicles are going to be uh, products and vehicles will need to be priced way below 37,000 pounds in order to get to 50, 60, 60, 65% take rates. And so um, I'd like to ask you, you know, Sam, you, you brought these great points. I mean, what are they leaning towards? Like the parliament? Because they ask these questions that they know they don't have the answer for. Look, it's, it's really hard to predict concretely, actually, and with any great authority. But a couple of observations, I think. First, among parliamentarians, there seems to be the view, which we've discussed already there, about the, the two major concerns. Concern number one, data going back to China from Chinese EV companies accessed by the Chinese intelligence law. And tied into that is being able to track where ministers are here or sensitive officials are here uh, or switch off cars. So that's, that's we'll call that concern number one. And then concern number two, which is the you know, quote unquote flooding of the British EV sector by Chinese cars, Chinese cheap cars. Now, the problem for parliamentarians trying to win popular support for either of those concerns is for concern number one, it's quite abstract. Until you can really evidence that's the case, then you're not going to really win public on side, I don't think. And I would point to TikTok as an example of this. You know, the prevailing view here is that TikTok perhaps is sending data back to China. I don't think that stops people from using it. In fact, TikTok continues to gather, uh, you know, go from strength to strength and gather new subscribers and users. So clearly just presenting that it's a concern argument isn't going to win over anyone there. And the second issue they have with it about the, the idea of flooding the market well from a consumer point of view having a highly competitive market flooded with cheap vehicles in a cost of living crisis isn't a negative if you see what i mean so again how can you turn around and try and ask someone to justify spending 5 10 15000 more pounds on a allied or western car brand than you can on a equally if not better than that quality chinese brand i, I just don't see them winning that particular argument there at all I think another couple of factors at play here is we don't have a very good media environment for asking difficult questions when it comes to these sort of things. You know, what are the trade-offs? Um, the media typically tends to go to MPs or activists or people with a vested interest rather than subject area experts, typically, and that there are exceptions to that rule, but that's that's my general sense of it. And again, I think the think tank space has, has fallen short on this particularly. And in terms of where the government goes, I suspect this is not a government priority, to be really to be really blunt. We've seen the pushback on net zero, a couple of the net zero commitments. I'm not sure there's someone in there who's a point person whose entire job is just thinking about how we roll out realistic EV standards and uh, ambitions. And my gut would tell me that they're basically getting into the mindset for a general election, which means they focus on reducing crime and being tough on immigration. I just don't see where EV really fits into that. If anything, the prevailing narrative coming out of Downing Street is we back our motor cars, you know, our, our diesel and our petrol cars. That's what the backbone of your average Brit is, you know. Um, so that's quite a long answer to a very good question. And I hope perhaps my inability to find like a concrete answer gives you an idea of the sort of complexity and lack of strategic uh, direction we've got on this issue right now. But I, but I also think this is the the existential question that we have, which is around de-risking and do we need China? Well, if we need an electrical vehicle market, we absolutely need China. 
And it, that, that's just a hard thing for people to accept in this country. And I think one of the, you know, the points that keeps coming back, we need the costs to globally come down. We've all committed to, you know, renewable energy, sustainable uh, automobiles. But we need the cost to come down. We can only do that with China. We can't do it ourselves. And so you mentioned it when Rishi Sudak made the announcement around 2030. He had to because we were never on track to hit those hit those targets. Never. Ever. No. And and so people don't realise that. They think it's a more political debate around which came out of a by-election um, around the ULES scheme, which is based in London. It's not. It's around we, we simply were not on target to hit those infrastructure targets to make it affordable, make it sustainable. Um, so it was the right thing to do because we had to do it. And one of the practical challenges uh, for the UK market is is getting enough Chinese companies to homologate right-hand drive because there are enough left-hand drive markets in, the, in Europe and Latin America and Southeast Asia, with the exception of Thailand and, and Singapore and Japan, obviously, and Australia, um, that their growth can start in those countries. The UK, th- there's no... Uh, now, 1.94 million vehicles, the UK is still a top 10 market. Um, and the only way manufacturing locally in the UK would make sense is if they were exported to Singapore, to Australia, to Thailand. But at such a high cost uh, region, it wouldn't make sense to ship UK-made vehicles to Thailand. They might make sense in Singapore or Australia or Japan, but but then we're we're talking different standards and different types of vehicles. And and as a point you made earlier too is we don't make mass-produced vehicles. We make high-end supercars, which are actually mm-hmm. more often than not unique to ship and therefore actually quite problematic when it comes to standards because almost every single automobile that we make is unique and often these countries don't accept they have a you know standardized rules you know for the for, for the likes of Volkswagen that produce Toyota produce hundreds of thousands of these cars you know a lot of these automobiles can't just run a car into the ground to demonstrate its um, engine capacity they, they can't do that it's a 2 million pound car so it, it's 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 that problem as well the one thing that we didn't touch on also is the innovation part um, because the UK and the Europe is in a situation like this because with the exception of London, and, and you know, please push back if you, you think I'm completely wrong on this, but there is no Silicon Valley in Europe and there is no Silicon Valley in, in, in the UK. And so innovation I believe, and I'm generalizing, I'm overly generalizing here, is more about how we can eke out a penny or two on the manufacturing side of things, as opposed to, okay, let's create a UK version of TikTok or something that is going to be a global brand or global product that we can hang our hat on. And that to me is the biggest part because when when we lived in Beijing, Steve, all those German people that we hung out with, who I love, you know, I would ask them and and they were like, oh, yeah, we should have bought Tesla, you know, 10 years ago. Right. When they didn't matter. It's like, okay, whatever. And 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 so I used to ask them, okay, name me five globally relevant Chinese technology companies. Right. We can do that. No problem. Now name me five globally relevant U.S. technology companies. 
no problem. Now name me five globally relevant European, German, UK technology companies. You know, with the exception of ARM in the UK, I, I, I can't really think of any. Not off the top of my head, but... No, no, and I, th- I think you're completely correct. And the UK, the Europe, Europe doesn't have, you're right, it doesn't have a Silicon Valley. We have pockets and these clusters, but they're just completely not connected. And that's a fundamental problem because what happens is they become pockets and then they, uh, there's nowhere for them to expand. So they're bought out by America. So I'm based just in just outside Cambridge. And we have these amazing companies that spin out of the university that become kind of unicorns and then they're bought by the US. And that's the problem. We don't subsidize them. We don't offer tax incentives and therefore we don't grow these clusters and it becomes Silicon Valley buys them out. And and so we don't become a technological leader, even though some of the stuff is coming from the UK. So that was absolutely fascinating. And I think we touched on quite a broad range of things there. And and one of two's answers towards the very end, you know, what, what is the next couple of decades of EV look like? really reframed where we should be considering the risk versus rewards from the UK point of view for me. I mean, are we even asking the right questions when we're asking, should we allow Chinese vehicles uh, into the into the market here? Is that even the right question in a year's time, let alone in 10 years time? What about you, Steve? Yeah, I think there's unfortunately so much to wait and see. We're going to have to see how the Inflation Reduction Act plays out. We're going to have to see what happens uh, around the European Union. And again, based on our conversations last week around de-risking from supply chains, whether that be electrical vehicles or critical minerals, is it a realistic possibility? I think, Sam, we're just going to have to wait, as two says, for the next 20 years to find out. Hopefully by that point, I will have passed my test, but, you know, fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Cool. Steve, I'll speak to you next week. (laughs) 